This is the Power to Podcast, show 63. I think listening is really crucial. It's really easy for us to jump into our advice or into our favorite things to share because we're so excited about them, but really listening is, is crucial. Welcome to a real-world education with insight and advice from teachers in the game, where current and former educators reveal what truly sets apart the great teachers and what it takes to make a positive impact on students. Whether you're in pre-service learning, new to the game, or a seasoned veteran, this is the show for you. You'll leave feeling inspired to take action because we are powering education by empowering you. Hey, what's going on, everyone? This is Kennerman, host of the Powered Up Podcast, and I am here with my co-host, Mr. Matt, the Tech Tool Belt Rogers. Matt, let's pretend like we're sitting around the dinner table. How was your day at school today? My day at school. Uh, you know, I I didn't Ooh. go to school today. Um, oh, that's right. Well, yeah, not a great reason. That. I I had a it's okay. I had a bereavement day, which, you know, um, for all those educators, it's okay to take time when, when you lose someone. Um, so we actually had a great day of celebration, but, um, you know, I, what did I do at four o'clock? I called my, my grade level partner and I said, did the kids survive? And, and I got an okay report. So I'm feeling okay about going in, but I'll be going in a few extra minutes early tomorrow to, to see the, I'm sure organized chaos that my room was left in. How was your How was your day at work and and work? Recently? It was great. I feel really bad. I asked that question. Now. I totally forgot about that conversation before. Oh, um, stop! You're fine. But you're right. It is important to do that. And you know that elementary self-contained teacher leaving the the sub. You always feel like you're representing yourself and your kids when you're when you're leaving them when you're leaving them there. Uh, I had an awesome day. I I actually taught stat three times today. Um, with a skill I learned at um, attending Pete and C conference. Um, and it was it was fun because one, the lesson went really well. Uh, I was able to teach the kids how to use pivot tables in Google Sheets, which I had never used before. I am not an Excel Google Sheet guru by any means. But I learned it at the conference and initially, immediately said, this would be great for a stat class. Approach the teacher, we talked about it, we designed a lesson. Um, I had a lot of former students in that class, which made it which made it more enjoyable, uh, but the students picked it up really quickly and it's going to set them up for success when they do their big projects towards the end of the year. Um, it's a, it's going to help them analyze and aggregate their data very, very quickly. Um, and I was impressed at how uh, fast the kids picked it up. One of the coolest things was when we, with the, with the one class, we got a little bit further and we got into these average questions and I was showing them how to organize the data with the pivot table and then set up formulas to calculate averages. One of my former students actually pointed out that you can use pivot tables to automatically count averages. And so she showed us how my 10 minute formula was reduced to two clicks and it found it faster and more accurately. 
Um, so it was, it was fun because I was still learning. It's new to me. Um, and just, yeah, it's, I just love those moments in the classroom where everybody's kind of learning and exploring together. Um, so, so it was a, it was a good day. It's always fun to, for me to reminisce with kids that are seniors that I had, you know, seven years ago and, and interact with them again. And especially when someone brings up an efficient way, uh, you know, student led is, is your thing. So that they brought that up is, is pretty cool. I guess, you know, the question I would have for you is, do you feel like at this point going into as an elementary teacher, traditionally going into a high school classroom, do you feel comfortable in that environment? Is it is teaching teaching or are there different levels of nerves? You know, preparation is an obvious thing, but is there a different level of nerves with a, a different group of, of students? I would say the hardest thing with with that position and it's it, it's more so in high school compared to elementary, but regardless of the grade level is like that rapport piece. You know, I relied as my, as a classroom teacher, I think I had fantastic rapport with my students. And so I'm walking into a classroom with potentially zero rapport. If I don't know any of these students, which happens a lot, you know, my own elementary school is one of seven. So there's very commonly there's, I don't know any kids in the class. Um, when I know a couple, I'm able to like kind of tap into that rapport from five, seven years ago and like quickly establish it with other kids. Um, I would say that's the hardest piece because I think it's so important in facilitating a lesson. Um, it depends on the teacher I'm working with as well and, and kind of what that environment is like. Um, but in terms of teaching a high school lesson, I do think teaching is teaching. Um, you know, like I use wait time today. I was big on wait time as a classroom teacher and I used it today and made the kids feel uncomfortable until they realized like I was going to sit there and wait until somebody called out and answered the question for me. Um, so, you know, teaching is definitely teaching, but every grade level, every, um, you know, type of student, whether they're gifted, special ed, ESL, there's always different challenges that come with, with the students that you're working with. And so, you know, you just kind of have to be ready to, uh, to adapt to those changes. And for me, I try to partner with the teacher as much as possible. I'm strong at math. I took stat, I took stat in college, but I'm not by any means a stat expert. So trying to bring some, bring a skill set or bring an idea to that teacher, but really route it through their expertise is, has been my, my go-to strategy for situations like today. Yeah. So transitioning into talking about technology, uh, our conversation with our guest tonight, Dr. Monica Burns, was focused almost completely around ed tech. Um, and she she is an ed tech enthusiast. She's an ed tech expert. Um, and I will say that without any hesitation, not only based on her website and what she's created with her brand, but with our conversation tonight, she was incredibly knowledgeable, incredibly thorough. We gave her, I think, really challenging questions where she could have fluffed her way around it, and she did the exact opposite. She gave practical strategies, things to think about, things to analyze as a classroom teacher in incorporating technology into your classroom. So, Matt, do you have any thoughts, ideas, or, or things you want to share before we jump into that? I would just extend that, you know, it, it seems like uh, through this conversation, what I, what I was most refreshed about was that she got my role as a teacher, your role as a tech coach, and could empathize, understand what that experience is like, 
and provide support there. You know, this is what I can bring to the table. This is my suggestion. And so much of ed tech right now is in the, the theory or the mindset or the preparatory steps that go behind the scenes before it gets presented in the classroom. We talk about early adoption and you know, the classic thing that I would always say is I would, I would justify angry birds as physics in my classroom. That's not teaching physics, right? Like that is such a weak way to teach it. But early on when, when devices were not education friendly, they weren't built with the purpose of education. It was really difficult to, to incorporate it. And what I saw as resistance, you know, I, I struggled with, it, it was really cool to watch her light up at you know, this is what I was doing. This is how I saw it enhancing my classroom. You know, it wasn't the only thing we used. It was a really important thing. Um, you can just tell that she takes on challenges and just has a pragmatic way to to make it turn into a good situation. So awesome conversation. I 100% agree. If you're wondering how to use technology, why to use technology, uh, where to put technology to the side, anything related to EdTech, this has been by far our best conversation around this topic. Um, and it's something for a new teacher up to a 35-year teacher to really to really listen in, tune in, and, and think about how you're incorporating it into your classroom. So uh, without any further delay, let's jump into that interview with Dr. Monica Burns. Hi, Monica. Welcome to the Powered Up Podcast. How are you doing today? Great. Thank you. Excited to be here with you both. Awesome. Us as well. So to kick things off, why don't you officially introduce yourself? Let us know where you're tuning in from and just give us a snapshot of what your career uh, in education has looked like. Well, I am based on the East Coast. I'm a former New York City public school teacher. I taught in an elementary classroom for several years, starting off with chalk and a chalkboard and all of those great things, overhead projector, transparencies, words we don't use every day, uh, at least uh, not as frequently as I used to in the past, um, before transitioning into a classroom where we were one-to-one with iPads. So over... 10 years ago, that all started. And about 10 years ago, 10 this May, I launched classtechtips.com, which is my website with lots of ed tech tips. Um, my podcast, the Easy Ed Tech podcast, came out of that work. And along the way, I've spent time with educators and schools and districts and classrooms and working with different organizations to really think about technology integration, how we can make decisions that make it easier for everyone. Awesome. So you were a part of you were a part of a what would have been a very new wave in terms of one to one being that long ago that you were transitioning into that with iPads. And then you launched a website and you have gravitated completely towards EdTech. What was it? Do you remember the moment where you said, wow, like this is a game changer with the one to one or like what was that moment that you just totally gravitated towards EdTech when you when you went into that one to one movement? I think watching students on iPads early on with iPads really 
gravitating towards the camera, right? Or thinking about their voice or how now they were able to capture uh, their learning a little bit differently. That's when all of my wheels started spinning, right? So having taught a unit on different types of triangles for a number of years, but then having kids being able to draw out the triangle, name each one, talk about it, use the vocabulary that they might not have been ready to try out in their writing about math, for example, right? Just seeing that confidence boost uh, with students. We're talking before Google Classroom or any of those other pieces, but just that early entry piece of using devices that way. Um, that's really when I started getting excited about what this looked like beyond just uh, making you know PowerPoint presentations in the computer lab every once in a while. We were really able to be thoughtful about our technology integration and go beyond just the publishing of a project to think about the process uh, throughout the entire entire unit of study. So Monica, I uh, actually was a learning support teacher and I wanna say it was three weeks after the iPad came out, one was dropped off in my classroom. Um, so fairly early adopter, which was very cool. Um, one of the things that uh, in that learning support classroom, they were always kind of coming to me and saying like, so what have you done with the iPad? How, how has this transformed the learning? And uh, for years, I've kind of talked about how I, I spent so much time justifying weak uses of technology. I'd say, oh, it's assistive technology or, you know, the, the, you know, the device had the capability, but the software, the apps weren't necessarily developed as a educational based product quite yet. So can you just kind of talk about, you know, you obviously are tied very much to this uh, you diving into and being willing to risk take with technology, even if, you know, drag and drop website creation wasn't quite up to date. You know, it's so much easier before um, having to do HTML code and all those different back end things that, you know, five, six years into having devices in kids' hands, it's a wildly different experience. Can you kind of talk about, you know, it seems like you were an authority in this this area when you know technology in the classroom wasn't so easy to have. Well, I would say early on, similar to your experience, it was really trying to unpack what this thing could do, right? You could sense that there was not just the energy and excitement from a bright and shiny aspect. That's part of it, right? Anything Absolutely. new has that, but it but it wears off right after a while. It's not sustainable necessarily. But after getting over that piece of it, really saying, okay, I've seen a couple things happen already. I've seen students be able to draw on this device in a way that goes beyond what they might do on paper, right? extra features, ability to add voice notes, other pieces, right? So let's keep looking for these other resources that allow for some of these layers or interactions with text or ability to talk about something or just go to a place that we wouldn't have been able to go to before because we can you know, pull up that content a little bit easier. So that's really where I was getting at, was saying what kind of other things are out there that might also have some of these similar features I've seen work really well. What are other people saying and talking about and excited about within this particular space? And then of course, right, what out on the app store might be able to work, not in the way it was intended to, right? It was may not have been designed that way at first as a consumer product, but maybe it does have an application for what I'm looking to accomplish with students in a classroom. So it really was a bunch of that searching, 
looking, playing around, making some decisions and deciding if that was going to be something I might introduce to a group or if there was some value that was either very much intended um, by the designer of that tool or app in that um, you know, at that time, or maybe it was something that they might not had considered, but was going to work really well uh, with my group. I think one of the things uh, you brought up is that idea of when the camera uh, was in, like, incorporated in your classroom, right? Recording those aspects. You know, one of the early things that I remember is the moment my kids were in front of a device, their, I guess, intrinsic motivation to make it good was so much higher, which meant, you know, they were preparing better. They were, you know, trying to make sure that they were portraying everything in sequence using, you know, these uh, graphic organizers like storyboards, all of those features. I guess my my question for you really goes into the idea of how do you um, transition to the meat of instruction? There was a long time before we really had, you know, in... SAMR is fairly out out of date at this point. I guess um, there was ways that we could, you know, initially bring a web quest onto a tablet, right? Or, you know, go into Google Earth and explore geography, go somewhere that the kids had never gone before. But not until, at least in my opinion, you started having LMSs and you had, you know, Google Suite or, you know, Apple Classroom pulling their features in um, to make it seem like you could actually have workflow. So I guess the main question I, I would say is when did you feel like it started to click? When did you feel like, you know, we could explore with this device, but I was really routing a lot of my instruction through this one-to-one device um, because I it took me a while, I guess is the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of layers there, right? There were that first layer of being able to access content a little bit more easily or to be able to distribute, right? Differentiated content was another layer that kind of went on top of just the content consumption piece of it, right? Then there's that ability to really give kids an opportunity to create and hopefully get all their wonderful creations well-organized, right? That's where that LMS piece that you mentioned come in, came in, right? And really establish a workflow. So I think, and as a classroom teacher, that was constantly an evolving and reflective practice for me to say what not only has a level of ease and efficiency, because that's important, right? That's a piece of it uh, for myself as an instructor. I don't want to push that aside and say that's not a part of it because it is, right? We can reallocate our time for other things if we do have that level of ease and efficiency. But also, right, what are we doing here that is really taking it up a notch, right? Adding that extra layer that just would not have been possible before, right? You mentioned some of the different ways that assistive technology was working within your space. I think for me, some of that came down to differentiation, um, not only the choice aspect, right? Using QR codes before we would see them everywhere, like we have more recently, right, to let students scan an article or a video recording that was going to be just right for them, right, so that content piece, but then also giving them choice and how they might um, interact with pieces throughout the process of a unit and then whatever it might be that they create. So I think that jump from just interaction with content, streamlining some routines to more of a thoughtful differentiation of student learning experiences was really when I saw that that jump happen as a classroom teacher. Absolutely. I, I want to highlight or, or repeat something that you said about the efficiency, because I think that is a 
huge problem in education for teachers right now, not looking at how to be as efficient as possible, and frankly, not being aware of how they could be as efficient as possible. Uh, as an instructional coach, I see it across the board. I see it more so in elementary, I think, perhaps, I think just because as a self-contained teacher, they have so many different responsibilities as compared to a secondary teacher that has, you know, maybe one class or one content area with a, a few different classes and, you know, really evaluating. And, and uh, we've been talking as a coaching team and building professional learning completely focused around trying to get teachers to be more efficient with their time using automatic graders, using so many different things that can allow them to, like you said, reallocate their time to something that's more meaningful and is frankly going to impact students in a much more meaningful way. So I just wanted to reiterate that because I think that's that's super important. When teachers are trying a new tool in front of their class, what are some some look fors that they can think about or pay attention to to decide is this is this worth it? Was it great for students? Was it great for teaching? What are some things that they can really pay attention or look for to evaluate evaluate whether or not it's a tool to incorporate in the future? So when I'm talking to teachers about choosing different tools or adding on to their tool belt or perhaps building right that tool belt for the first time, I tend to gravitate towards open-ended tools that could be used in a lot of different ways. And so that's definitely something I encourage educators to look for when they are bringing something new into a classroom. Is this a one and done? Sometimes that's okay, right? That's mm-hmm. I don't want to say that's not the case, right. right? But sometimes that's quite all right. It has its purpose, its service purpose. We can move on, but we don't want 90% of what we're sharing, right? That quantity over quality to be the one and done's, right? We really want to have things that we can revisit multiple times that we can think aloud as we're modeling to say, I bet this button is where I'm going to record my voice because it kind of looks like what we saw in this other tool, right? So making those connections so that you are building those transferable skills as well with students. So I would say some of the look fors are the ability to revisit for multiple projects or multiple project types. If someone is listening in in a coaching role who might work with educators in different subject areas, right? those open-ended tools that you could use in a math classroom, in a social studies classroom, in a science classroom, or ones that I think are important to have in their tool belt. And there's a few where I've done some work with their team, like the book creator folks or um, Flipgrid, if you're thinking about that as both an assessment and a creation platform, or even Adobe Creative Cloud Express for education, which used to be Spark, right? These are things you could use in lots of different ways. Google Sites, I know you mentioned the Google Suite earlier, right? So these things that we might be able to revisit for multiple projects are ones that I tend to recommend. And when teachers are looking at them, right, or trying them out with their class and they're saying, yeah, this is what I'm going to keep in my tool belt. I could use it in all these different ways or this is interesting, but I do not want to revisit this. I'm not going to spend as much time on introducing this to a group, right? We don't need to know every feature for this project, right? We're not going to come back to this later on in the year. So those are some things that I would look for, just the repurposing piece um, and how we're modeling or thinking aloud as we're navigating it and showing it off to a group. Can I just ask you, and I don't know if app specific, you know, we've all had the interactions of, oh, I I go to a conference and I talk to someone who has a gazillion apps that all have one very best purpose, right? And and I think we understand, and and you were kind of talking about that. I have a, a guideline. If I can't come up with three distinctive ways that I can use that app, I probably am not putting it in front of kids. 
because if I'm putting it on a, a kid's device, I have to train them in using it. So I guess my my question for you is that introductory uh, foundational kit, you know, a new teacher comes into the classroom, they get handed an iPad or a, a Chromebook or whatever the case may be, maybe not app specific, which you can share your favorite apps, but what are, you know, the categories of things that you're saying, you know what, you need to have a strong this, you must have this for creativity, those type features, what are, what are those foundations that you kind of press as must-haves? Well, one phrase I use a lot, and especially the past year and a half or so, is embrace your place. If you're being told that Schoology is where everything's going to be, or Seesaw is what everyone's using, you might know better, right? You might have a favorite of your own. You might have seen the power of something else, and that's wonderful, right? But when we are working with a large district that's taking on right a big deployment, there's a lot of value in embracing that place, even if it's not the very best or your very favorite. And there's a couple reasons there. You know, one, having that as a core in your tool belt is going to help you make decisions that are aligned with other people that are around you, right? You have that community of people who are also using that same central hub or space, whatever it might be. So you're speaking the same vocabulary, which is good for community building, good for right in-house professional development, and just having someone to go to if you have a great thing you want to share or something that you need a little bit of help with. So that embrace your place piece of your LMS being core to your tool belt, I think is really important. Important. It's not only going to make your life easier as an educator, but I know over the past you know, two years or so with transitions to remote learning, so many people have stories to share about you know, students who might have had three different places they were being asked to log into from different teachers or families that were trying to navigate, right, supporting a few of their students or children who were students in the same school, right, jumping in and out of all these places. So embrace your place is the first thing that I come to in talking about the tool belt. Then there is that create creativity piece or that open-ended creation tool. I think of it as a blank canvas or a choose your own adventure. That's one that you are going to use for three or four or five times, right? Maybe for a big project or a couple of small ones. And that tool might also act as the next category, but that next one would be the assessment piece. And it may be something like we always come back to Google Forms because we use Moat and we have the voice component that goes along with it and we really value giving those differentiated options for students. Or it might be Seesaw is the place that we are checking for understanding, right? Two or three times a week, students are posting their very best fill in the blank and we're checking in that way. So whatever that formative assessment piece is, which can look very different in different classrooms, just knowing that that is part of the tool belt. So if you're really looking at three core areas, right, these are all ones that are more interactive for distribution, for creation, right? I would think about your LMS, your creation tool, and your assessment tool, the core as three core areas. And then those others that you might, you know, bring in might be ones that have more of a consumption side of it, right? So maybe not everyone is using Epic, but a good chunk of teachers are using Epic to help students connect with high quality reading materials. Maybe not everyone in the district is using Desmos, but the educators who know that this is a game changer for their content, that might be a core one in their tool belt. And I guess I'll, I'll follow up and then I'll, I'll ask this to both of you. Um, a big movement was student choice and voice and, and what have you. How did you incorporate the kids 
own exploration. You know, I had certain things that I, I had preset or, you know, they, they found a um, web-based version that would have worked better if we had the app. How did you navigate um, when a student would bring something to you because they were trying to be creative in a new way um, to go through that process to evaluate it or, you know, hey, just stay within this shoebox. I imagine that's not what you guys did, but um, that management of, of what they would bring to the table. Well, working in a fifth grade classroom, as an example, as a classroom teacher and introducing different tools and trying things out and seeing what kids were excited about, you would absolutely have students say, can we do this with this? Or can I use this instead, right? Or have a favorite way to share. So if students are primed and ready for that, right, they've had those experiences, I think absolutely let them share, let them come to the table, let them say, this is a way that I'm thinking about doing this. Is this possible or is this okay in this moment? moment, right? If you're working with students, especially at the secondary level, who may have worked with a handful of different teachers, each who have something different that they love to share, right? You might have a student come with a tool or an example that you've never seen before, and you encourage them to make a case, right, for that. You say, this is the rubric that we're using. This is the checklist with the types of components that I'd like to see included. Are you able to do this with inside the space? Because I won't be able to help you with any of the ins and outs. So maybe let's give it a week. And then if you're struggling, right, and a YouTube video isn't helping us fix it, right, or get through whatever piece we need to get through, right, then maybe we come back to these core tools that I always have as an option. So I think there's a combination of factors there to consider, right, what it looks like to set kids up for success in any of those spaces. So if you do have supporting resources like a strong rubric or checklist or other pieces that can help a student make a decision around that, you know, those are opportunities to involve them in that conversation. Yeah, I, I want to reiterate just what you said about the the students making a case. That was a similar approach for me when I was in the classroom. It was, you know, here are the options that we're doing. If you have other ideas, if you have other tools, if you have other things you've used, let me know what it is. And like you said, justify it, make a case for it, explain to me why you think you should be able to use that. Um, I'll commonly see with, you know, student choice for, say, a project you have where it's like you can write a paper, you can make a poster, you can make a slideshow, you know, um, put, I would put more information with that. So it would be if you're going to write a paper, here are the strengths of writing a paper that you can only accomplish by writing. Here are some weaknesses. If you want to report, record a podcast, here are the pros, here are the cons. If you want to make a video. So tr trying to get them to see that evaluative framework to then also be able to justify and say, hey, Mr. Ehrman, you know, why isn't this a choice for this project? I, I would like to do this and, and getting them to think through that, that justification piece. Because I think in the end, what really matters is the students are thinking about the content and they're explaining it in a way. So who really cares how it's being submitted? Like you said, Monica, as long as they know that if it's a tool you don't know, they're going to have to figure out their own ways to support themselves or you, know, you, the teacher and the student are digging through YouTube together to try to, to, try to find those answers. You had mentioned about um, you know, living in your, uh, your, your place, but I'm not saying it right, but I loved what you said about like starting with your LMS and growing from there. And seeing as that you were so into ed tech for a long time, Matt and I have been as well, well before COVID. I think there was a lot of ed tech enthusiasts that, you know, obviously everything that's happened related to COVID has been awful, but I think a lot of us saw like, oh my God, like this is the moment where technology and education is going to 
hit a, a new height very, very quickly. And I think that has happened. But what I want you to try to maybe think about, or, or maybe you don't agree with me, but where do you think it's gone wrong in terms of dramatically increasing the amount of technology in schools that um, we kind of need to wind back or draw back or, or, or fix? Where have we gone wrong in terms of the amount of technology that we're using in classrooms right now because of COVID? Well, it's been such a challenging year in, in so many ways. And when it comes to using technology, right, there were just everyone went from zero to 100, whether you were at 95 beforehand, right? So that idea of having a balance between hands-on, offline, analog, whatever you want to call it, experiences with digital tools is so important. And I often, if I you know, am speaking at an event, will start off by sharing a picture from my classroom where my compost bin was in one corner and my iPad cart was in another corner, right? It's not the iPad cart was never going to replace the compost bin. If we dropped apple cores and banana peels in there, it would have been a big mess, a big smelly mess. And so, you know, it's not a one or the other situation. I think it really is about finding the balance. And so for many people who have gone back right in a very, again, challenging year, even if you are face-to-face, -face, I think there's been some tough choices on, okay, what are we going to keep here? Or what are we keeping because we're in this routine already and we're just trying to survive with a lot of other things going on? So maybe next year we will remove that extra station or we'll have a different hands-on experience that we didn't get a chance to have this year. Or we'll go out to that museum in our community instead of pulling up something on Google Arts and Culture, right? Like, it's great that we can do that. I've got a post that I'm putting out for Earth Day with some favorite virtual reality field trips. Like, I love that we have these options, but it doesn't have to be the only option, right? If you have the ability to do these hands-on experiences, right, leaning back into that, I think is, is really important. So I know from my conversations and my work with different schools and districts, right, there's been some of the just, let's take all that digital and keep it even though we're face-to-face, -face, right? And we're not necessarily making the most of that face-to-face -face time because we've got a lot of things going on. And then there's other situations where there's a real pushback to the nostalgia of this is what we did before and we want to go back to how things were before, right? And abandoning some of the great things that we were able to thread in. So just like anything that we overdo, right? We have that tendency to pull back, you know, really hard, right? If I'm only eating vegetables and from nowhere else on the food plate, right? Or the food pyramid, right? I'm going to get sick of that real fast and never want to see another vegetable again. But if I'm able to, you know, think a little bit more about, you know, moderating those pieces, right? I'm going to be set up better to make some different decisions. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I think the balance is huge. You know, um, we're as an instructional coach team, we're a lot of times pushing like teachers, close your computers for the day, let the kids do a chart paper together, let them do, you know, gallery walks, all, all of those things. There's no reason to abandon that now that we don't have to. Um, the thing that I would love to see pushed more, and you mentioned this right away when you talked about the camera being on the iPad, is that I haven't seen the level of creativity change a lot as much as I would have hoped or would like to see. You know, it went from there was a lot of content consumption, not, not every teacher is doing that, but there's a lot of content consumption in education. And it went from non-technology based content consumption to technology based content consumption. And that creativity spark hasn't inserted itself 
in, inserted itself into there yet where it's, you know, went from lectures to Edpuzzle. Edpuzzle is a great tool. It's a great way to, to uh, deliver content. But if that's all you're doing, you're, you're still not doing service to uh, service to your students. Matt, what have you seen in terms of even in your own classroom or just around, around your, your building and your district in that, in that same realm? Well, I mean, as a fourth grade teacher right now, what I'm seeing is anything that doesn't involve Google Meet or Zoom, the kids are getting closer to having the enthusiasm that they had pre-COVID. I think there is a little bit of unfortunate uh, negative association with a tool like that. Um, and I think one of the the things that I would say is, you know, the the idea of publishing, whatever that looks like, whatever publishing can be, whether that's, you know, typing up in uh, pic collage and putting a nice picture around it and printing it out and putting it in the classroom, anything that's, you know, there's a final product. I feel like that still has the same amount of allure, at least to nine and 10 year olds. You know, it's not necessarily them being, I think that's the biggest uh, shift is the iPad at this point in my classroom has been something that the kids have had since kindergarten on. Um, And so the allure of the tool, getting that out doesn't necessarily mean that we're doing something special. So it's the creativity of what are we choosing to use it for that no other grade necessarily has used it for before. And I think that's the challenge in our realm is, you know, I work with amazing teachers that their digital competency, like all teachers has gone through the roof, you know, early in this journey, it was, the us of the educational world being like, come on board. Like there are some great options. And now it's, you have teachers nearing the end of their teaching career, you know, whizzing through Excel and, and um, you know, all these different tools because they, you know, we do what it takes to be the best thing for kids. And so everyone rose to that challenge. I think really what it comes down to, though, is, as you were mentioning, Ken, when the kids are content creators, not just interaction, not just content receivers, but when they are creators that you showcase, that you, you know, publish it somewhere. Um, We have a a friend of ours, uh, Ken and mine, um, who uh, a a buddy of ours did a very silly re, I guess, um, spoof of a long division song that he did five years ago. And so what we ended up doing was he played that through Google Meet live. And, you know, he has a million views on this video. That's a big deal to them still, even though that was just receiving, right? Like it wasn't so much different. It's just presenting it in a way that's different than they've seen before is really, you know, how we avoid fatigue. I think that's a a big portion parents, teachers, kids, the fatigue of having to depend on a device. Hey, Monica, what's your advice on helping teachers avoid that fatigue? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a tough balance between wanting to make sure you're very intentional from a content standpoint, but then you're also very intentional from an engagement standpoint. So when we're thinking about that fatigue of what is it 
a fatigue of? Is it of looking at the screen, right? Is it that we haven't had a chance to talk it out in a group or in a think pair share or someone next to me with that Chromebook, you know, closed down or the iPad flipped over? So identifying, you know, where that's coming from and what needs to happen to really shift the mood, if you will, you know, I think that's where you know, I come back to in those conversations with what are we looking to change up or try or or make a little bit different. And it might be the audience piece, right, that you both spoke about, right? Who are we making this for? What is our purpose here today? And that doesn't necessarily have to involve, right, technology. It could be building something for someone else to see on the school grounds or creating a piece of artwork that we're posting in a different place, right? But we can also layer that technology on top of it to share that story a little bit more widely or to snap a picture of the collage that we made and tell the whole story behind our decision making right as we were creating that product so it may be more about right that audience who's going to see and celebrate this piece, stepping back from some of the technology and the use cases we've tried in the past, but layering them on or kind of coming in at a different angle for that value add that might be there. And and that term value add is what I sometimes use instead of benefits when having these conversations, right? What are we adding on to this experience because we decided to take our iPads out of the cart today, right? Or power up our Chromebooks. Yeah. with, With that value add piece, what is what is something that you've seen, you've done yourself, you've you've coached someone on, um, like a specific lesson or a project where that technology created an experience that we could not have without it being inserted into that lesson to to kind of show that you know there are absolutely times where devices need to be away, kids need to be off technology, engaging in conversations, moving around the room, but. What is an example of something that this lesson just hit a whole new level because of the technology that was involved? Yeah, well, just a couple, maybe a week ago or two weeks ago now, I was working with a group of upper elementary school students um, visiting their school and and working with them through a uh, through prep for a larger project that they're working on. So they're about to dive into an inquiry all ar- inquiry project all around oceans and ocean creatures and all this fun stuff that I, I had a taste of what they were working on, but I was there to help them with a project to kick it off. And so uh, we use the tool Book Creator, which I mentioned earlier. And so that's one where I introduced to them an I Wonder journal that I had started, right? I showed off quickly some of the options that they had for choosing a shape or using voice to text or recording their voice or adding in images and then kind of let them loose, right? We still talked about things we were curious about or we were wondering about before we opened up those devices, before I showed them, right, my example or talked about a tool, but giving them that space to make some choices while all working towards that same goal, like preparing for some independent research was really something that, you know, I felt resonated with that group, right? There are some students who jumped right to voice to text and found a quiet place in the corner so they could type things out, but just talking into their computer. And there's others that were so excited about pictures. And we had a conversation about adding in that citation piece too. So uh, that having just happened a, a week or two ago is, is definitely front of mind for a project where really felt that energy and excitement and the tool helped make it happen, but it wasn't the primary goal um, by any means. So can I ask you a question related to, you know, in your role, you come into many classrooms and the idea of showing examples is really difficult when we're trying to pull creativity um, because, you know, we've all classically done 
the the scenario hey here's the example that i have and you have 24 replicas of exactly what you did or the writing assignment that you revised so it sounds like you writing what are some of the ways that you present ideas that doesn't give away the opportunity to brainstorm own ideas because i think we all suffer from uh, the discomfort of, I don't know what they're going to come up with. I don't know if I can control what they're going to come up with, right? All of that. And and we are control freaks as teachers that we need, need to get over that. How do you settle that side down, but also boost and open that field of view of what that creativity could look like? Yeah, well, I think having an example or an exemplar or a non-exemplar, right, um, is really important to set the stage for expectations and what's possible, right? We don't know what we don't know, and we need some context sometimes, you know, jumping into these spaces. But the positioning and the framing of it is really crucial, right? So when I showed off that first page or the cover of my I Wonder journal, I said, I chose this because, but you might like this better, right? Or here are some of the options. The reason I chose this one is because of this, but you might choose this because of that, right? So you're really creating the environment where it's okay, encouraged to try something that's new or different, where it's all right if you change your mind, right? And that can communicate with our tone, right? With the way that we frame something, with how we're responding when we're walking around and seeing something or saying, you know, I did it differently, but you might want to do this. Or if you like this, then this might be the way that you decide. So really showing them those pathways or those options is really important. You're always going to have someone, right, who wants it to be perfect and just right. And in their mind, it being perfect and just right is looking exactly like yours, right? So having that conversation, that check-in, being mindful, right, sharing your example, but not feeling like you're using it as the only way, right? And also celebrating what other students are doing along the process, not just at the very end. I think it's a great way for them to see that there are other possibilities that are not only accepted, but really valued and celebrated celebrated. That's a, that's a, a great way that I never really thought about because I, I agree with you, Matt. It's so hard to introduce that, um, without getting the same result and, and the way you were framing it, Monica, with, you know, pointing out this or that, and, and it kind of circles back to that, that justification piece of, of them thinking about critically thinking, why am I using this tool? Why am I not using this tool or this, this feature? I think that's, I think that's really important. Um, have you, I don't know if you have involvement with with teachers and school districts that you're working with in terms of curriculum and in terms of kind of rewriting their curriculum or redesigning what they're they're structuring in their schools. My district is going through a, a major uh, really overhaul of, of all our curriculum district wide right now and incorporating technology into the curriculum, into the model lessons or the um, instructional resources is obviously part of that. But there's that catch-22 of, are we going to have this tool forever? Or is this tool going to be around? So what is your recommendation in terms of teachers involving that in bigger picture items like curriculum um, and, and how to frame the way the technology is, is inserted into that? Yeah, well, there's two pieces there that I think are, are worth mentioning. The first is, right, if you have a project that you've loved forever, you have great supporting resources, graphic organizers, a rubric, examples, checklists, all those things that you've loved and that have worked for you, they may work alongside a different type of output or student product, right? So it's not to say we need to recreate those expectations or what we're hoping students will share, right? There may be one of those open-ended tools that is 
checks all the same boxes that a traditional paper or book report or something like that might have done. So that's one piece of it. The other piece, coming back to your question around schools that I'm working with, there's a school that I'm working with in New York, both um, on-site over the summer, but now virtually kind of uh, beaming into their their, um, team meetings a few times a month where we come together, right? We know that something's gonna be coming up for them in the next month or so, right? A project that they're working on or something that's on their curriculum map already. And we'll talk about some of the options that you could explore. There's no one way to do it, right? If you're going to look at having students write graphic novels, there may be a few different ways. You might create some cells and change the landscape or change the size of the slide within Google Slides, for example, right? And get kids in there, creating something in a space they're already familiar with, or you might pull up a tool that's really designed to make comics and that helps, you know, work along the process too. So I know when I work with groups that way, where especially there's a curriculum that's already established or one in the process of a review, right? We'll think about what are we really hoping to accomplish here and what is going to help us get there. And it may just be saying, yes, that tool we introduced earlier has all the features that are going to help students, right, address the same sort of, of output too. I think it's a really interesting point. And I'm going to kind of take a little shift and I'm going to ask both of you, you know, in your roles, you're very much tied to ed tech and the content of getting teachers um, supported with educational technology. And Ken was saying, you know, as you're doing a curriculum overhaul, you're considering technology. Well, you know, your role is switching from being a tech department role into a curriculum department role because of the the integration there. And I guess my question is really, Monica, what do you see ed tech looking like in the future of either of your careers? Because it is shifting. Whereas, you know, again, digital competency of even our, our slowest uh, adopters had to jump to a high level. So now that everyone's working at almost a level playing field, where do you feel like, you know, whether that's post pandemic or in the next few years, that the the ideal balance of ed tech, where, where does that lie? Yeah, well, you know, this past, you know, two years or so, and not just in education, but in many different industries, right, that term acceleration, right, everything just sped up. Um, We had a feeling we would be in a place using technology in classrooms like this in five to 10 years, but here we are two years later, and a lot more experiences have taken place, right? So that acceleration piece is really huge. I have a feeling that we're going to slow down, right, that pace, right, that accelerated pace is really going to slow. I don't know about it being a plateau, but definitely slowing down in terms of that curve um, of growth of adoption or interest even, right, within using tools in different ways. But I will say, and I have um, my newest book for ASCD is called EdTech Essentials, and there's 10 of them that I talk about. And one that has been coming up more and more in conversations like this one, right, is towards the end of the book, which is the transfer chapter, right? What are we doing to get transferable skills, right, in place? And that goes along with all the others, right? If I'm able to navigate a space and know that that 
button typically does this, or I should have something that gives me this option, right? And that comes from the modeling we might do or the conversations we might have with students who are troubleshooting something, right? So that sort of transferable skills is something I'm leaning into a little bit more, just the same way that we might use a vocabulary word with a group of first graders for the first time and unpack it a little bit in a conversation, right? We can do the same thing when modeling how we are interacting in digital spaces too, really to help build that that muscle for students who might bounce around to the newest thing that we just don't even know what it is just yet. I, I don't think that skill could be important enough because like you said, it's what allows you to to be successful in in your role with using technology. And you know, I've, I've commonly said that it doesn't matter what LMS students are working in. What matters is that they're working in an LMS. So if they move from middle school to high school or they transfer to another school district or when they go to college, it doesn't matter what LMS they used and what one they're transitioning into. They used an LMS. They understand the idea of the calendar, assignment features, turning in assignments, looking for those common icons and, and vocabulary words. And that's what's going to allow them to you know, as professionals, when they become adults, work in different jobs, because what's the first thing your job does? They train you on the tools that you use. But if they have that transfer skill, I I like the way you're framing that, you know, they're going to be able to pick it up much faster. So, you know, I think that's super important. Matt, to answer your question, uh, I think it kind of circles back to what I said earlier about the creativity piece, about teachers not using technology to use it, but having a purpose behind it, Um, hitting the efficiency pieces, hitting the creativity pieces, really using technology with a purpose and a and an explicit intention versus just using it because that's what they think needs to be incorporated into their into their classroom every day. So I know Matt and I could talk ed tech all day. Um, but before we before we hit our exit ticket, our, our final questions that we ask every guest, I wanna I want to learn about Dr. Burns or I guess it would really be Mrs. Burns at this point. Before the iPads, before the technology, before all of that, if we talked to some of your students when you had the overheads and you had the transparencies, what would they say about your class? What would they say about what it was like to be a student in your class, why they loved it, why it was special to them? What do you think they would say? Oh, gosh. Well, I would imagine they would say we went on a lot of field trips. <laughs> um, living and working in New York City, there were a lot of options, both walkable. There's nothing quite like taking 25 or 30 students onto the subway to go to different places. We That's just awesome. really went around to really explore um, our our neighborhood, our neighborhood, you know. And so I think that might be one of the things that would stand out to that group. Um, one of my favorite field trip memories, and this comes back to the composting we talked about earlier. Um, We were composting in the classroom. The kids were, and me, were all kind of skittish at first, like whether or not this was a good idea. Um, And then we went to the Central Park Zoo with one of the groups. And one of the years we went and we walked into the rainforest area, or I guess that's what they called it. And I just remember walking in and one of um, my girls turning to me and saying, Miss Burns, this smells just like our compost bin. (laughs) I was like, yep, it's humid and fresh and it smells just like the compost bin. Right. And so that sort of um, piece where, you know, those are the kind of things that, you know, I know stick out for me, but I think for students too, right. Getting out, none of that has to do with iPads or anything else. Right. But going out and exploring is, is so important. That's awesome. That's, that's amazing that you were able to give them those experiences. Um, 
I never would have guessed a, a school, a public school in New York City would have that compost bin. So it's that's neat that you did that. Did that? Where did that idea come from? Was it uh, something you read? Something we, you saw? A grant? Yeah, we actually um, participated in part of a large magnet um, funding that took place um, within our kind of area within the much larger um, New York City public school system. So within our district within. And so we were one of several schools that became a magnet school. So our theme as a magnet theme was environmental stewardship. So there were a lot of things happening um, in the building. That was one that we kind of kicked off um, in my classroom. And I'll often joke, especially when kind of speaking about all these pieces around purchasing worms on Amazon and having them shipped to our school in 2012. I usually show a screenshot of the actual receipt since we didn't have a bait and tackle, you know, shop uh, to pull up to nearby. Um, so that's always a, a funny, a funny memory for me too. Wow. 2012 Amazon purchasing, you were spearheading technology in, in every Gosh. facet. I wish it had stopped there, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So we're going to move into our exit ticket, which is the same four questions uh, and one request we ask every guest every week. So question number one, what is the best thing a teacher can do to make a student's school experience better? I think listening is really crucial. It's really easy for us to jump into our advice or into our favorite things to share because we're so excited about them. But really listening is, is crucial. Speaking of advice, um, what is the best advice that you've received? And it could be from a colleague, a supervisor, or even a student. So my mom was a teacher. And one thing she said to me when I started my first year was eat lunch with everyone. Like, don't work through lunch. Go down to the faculty room, right? Eat lunch with anyone who's there because that's where you learn everything important, <laughs> right? Whether that's learning about what's been going on in the building for 20 years that I just wouldn't know otherwise, learning about a student's family because they've had a lot of um, brothers and sisters go through the district or even learning about how to navigate the retirement system, right? Or any of the things, right? You never know what you're going to learn, um, but it's really important to be part of the community of educators that you're around, um, in addition to just taking a break <laughs> in the middle of the day um, and getting outside of your classroom. Which we all definitely need. What's funny is, you know, you often hear the opposite, right? Stay away, protect yourself. But no, I, I love that perspective. Um, moving into, you know, the school year, school year brings waves of, of challenge and joy. Um, you know, there are some days it's it's hard to to get through. Um, last week for us was conferences, right? That's always a, a busy time of year, report cards, meet the teacher. What is something that you think of or you'd like to share with educators to help them power up through that moment of struggle? Well, I know that I always felt like my to-do list was overwhelming, right? There's always going to be more to do. There's always going to be something that there's not time for. And really making sure that we remember that that's okay, right? It's more about what are the things that we need to prioritize? What are the must-haves? There's always going to be more to do. And it's easier said than done to just kind of walk away, right, at the end of the day or, you know, put in that 30 minutes or hour or whatever is part of your routine. I was a get there early, leave early kind of person, right? So whatever that looks like for you, just really having that moment to take a deep breath and say, there's always going to be something that needs to be taken care of. But did I take care of the things that can't wait? Yeah, awesome. And maybe that's the kind of grace and space you need to give yourself um, as often as possible. 
I might have needed to hear that today. So <laughs> you thanks. definitely needed to hear that. And, and leaving that list at school and not bringing it home mm. with you, I think, is mm-hmm. is important important as well. So uh, I think you'll give us a great answer for this one. It's easy to fall into facilitating a repetitive classroom. What do you think separates teachers who are constantly seeking change, innovation, and new teaching strategies? Gosh, well, you know, one of my favorite examples of this comes back to conversations where people, and I think outside of education, more often will make a a quick comment to say like, oh, those new teachers must love all this technology. must be so hard for the teachers who've been there forever, right? Just a huge generalization. And so what I really love and I always push back and share with them is like, no, it is the teacher who has been there for 15, 20, 25 years that when they see Google Arts and Culture and realize you can take kids out to Machu Picchu and walk down all these pathways, it's going to totally transform, right, their social studies lessons. So, you know, setting up then for the answer to your question, I think it's really about the people who are curious, who are wondering what is out there, right, who are continuing to question and wonder what is possible. Um, I know that gets me excited too. That's wonderful. This is an easy one. Um, you know, you have a uh ways to get in touch. How, how can our audience continue to follow along with the learning you put out there going forward? Yeah, so my blog, classtechtips.com, I started in May 2012 and just did a big relaunch to celebrate 10 years. So new look, a little bit easier on the blog page to navigate. So Class Tech Tips is the place to go uh, for all of that. My podcast, the Easy Ed Tech podcast, is on the blog and all the podcast places, <laughs> whatever app you're using, you'll find it there. And then I'm just Class Tech Tips on all the social platforms. So whether it is Instagram or Twitter or some quick tips on TikTok, uh, you can find me in all those places. Excellent. Thank you so much. We will we will link to all of that on our show notes page, which can be found at poweredu.up.com slash show 63. So we'll link to all that. Um, we'll link to all that there for you. Monica, thank you so much for your time tonight. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Matt and I are both EdTech enthusiasts amongst a couple of our other passions in the classroom. And, you know, if for teachers, administrators listening to this, if you're looking to bring someone in to impact your classroom, I'm going to tell you right now, you should be bringing a Monica because we threw, I think, really not tough questions, but in-depth questions. And you gave us in-depth answers that was there was no fluff in anything you said tonight and I, I really respect that you clearly are very in tune with not only the the tools that are out there but more importantly the reason behind it the you know the the strategy behind it and why it should be incorporated into the classroom so thank you so much for sharing that I am definitely going to follow your blog and your podcast much more more thoroughly moving forward so uh, I just appreciate your time and Matt why don't you send us on out of here I was going to say, I, I did check out your updated website. It is beautiful. I just want to yeah, point so that out. Yes, it is a very nice so, website. Thank you. So, thank, um, you. thank you. Monica, you've left us feeling powered up as we power down this episode. Thank you so much for your time. Um, everyone stay well and healthy. And the sun is out brighter each and every day as this is coming out. So, you know, summer is coming soon. Um, so we will get there, but make every day count between now and then. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.